everybody, Andrea here, your host and creator of the Bind Podcast, where we talk all things relationship. This is part two of Empathy as Sin. We're going to explore some of those dilemmas that people are facing in this great wave of, um, of religiosity that is happening in the Christian faith right now. I made some notes for myself. Uh, so if you hear paper rustling around, it's because I want to I wanna make sure that I touch on some of the topics that, that I put in here. I want to dive into self-accountability. And we will talk about that because it's it's a both and, right? Like we want to hold others accountable, but there's a degree to which I have to hold myself accountable too. And as a mental health professional, what I will tell you is there is this um, striking preface on self-care uh, going on in American culture right now, if uh, not in other cultures as well. And I, I do think that that is part of it, right? So uh, if we're if we're operating, if we're exploring that from a Christian perspective, uh, one of Christ's commands is um, love thy neighbor as thy as you love thyself. So if I'm not loving myself very well, um, I wonder what's being reflected onto. Um, other people. What does projecting my love look like if I'm not taking care of myself? Uh, But within that, it's not just a merely a let me cultivate the world narcissistically to accommodate all of my emotional needs, but let me become very, very curious about what my emotional needs appear to be, where my relational distances appear to be, right? Like, um, when we think of the story of Jonah, uh, it's so sad and so brilliant that um, where Jonah's story uh, left off, as some people would speculate that it was not a complete story, but I think that that's so perfectly, beautifully God, was he was somewhat sulking out in the corner, right, in the in the east, um, in the far east corner of Nineveh. He was just seeping in his sorrow and God pursued him and pursued him and pursued him. And even after completing the mission that God sent him out to complete where uh, salvation occurred and sanctification occurred, he rejected that. Uh, and so uh, there, there is a level of self-accountability and motivational, self-motivational pursuit of truth. And then the, uh, like, right, the, the kicker is how relationally that's reciprocated to us. And so, right, again, this is me debunking that idea that John MacArthur states in his handbook of effective biblical leadership that the Bible is not about relationship. Okay, um, we, we're already in disagreement, but I what I will do, John MacArthur, is I will respectfully uh, become very curious about where your ministry derives from. And so we're going to dive a little bit more into what was pulled from this book, what I pulled from this book, the um, Handbook of Effective Biblical Leadership. And, and let's just see where, where we land. What I want to make sure that I point out, again, as I talked about earlier, is that John MacArthur is very much so selling a very particular, um, so, so you as, if you're just attending church, if you're not a pastor, um, you are one member, you're, you are, um, you're sort of the product, what, what we're looking to get sold, um, or the, the, the message becomes the product and you are a form of a client. So, right? Like to become a preacher is to develop an audience and we're becoming transactional. If, if we're talking about leading people to our, in particular, church buildings and establishments, um, 
right? Like many preachers write books and sell books, yet we're still sold on this idea of inerrancy, but then out roll books like um, Bringing Up Boys and Every Man's Battle and um, The Power of a Praying Wife and um, uh, uh, Love and Respect. Um, so, so we can't we cannot argue inerrancy and the, the perfection that people are longing for in the word of God, but then endorse um, written materials by human beings. Uh, you can't have both and. Or can you? Tell me. Like, like that's where Andrea stands, and that's part of what shapes my um, how I intersect with holding on to my faith, but not subscribing to tribal pathologies or systematic Christianity. I want to point out to you another area where John MacArthur is trying to build up. So so we are one member, we are one cell, but then John MacArthur has to make another cell, right? John MacArthur has to create a, a sense of elitism within Christianity. And again, I, what I will say is a lot of the things in this book are amazing. I'm like, I'm floored by them. I'm like, yes, if this wasn't patriarchal and said, he, 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 man, 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 I would feel incredibly compelled to um, pursue this individual as my religious mentor. But I am a female, therefore, um, I am already uh, excluded as the elite to, to get to speak God's word. And so here is another quote from the book. Again, uh, John MacArthur is not the writer of these passages, uh, but one of his protégés is, and I do not know his name, um, but just look up the John MacArthur um, Handbook for Effective Biblical Leadership and you can figure out who he is. Uh, so it says, there must always be an authoritative nature about preaching the word of God. Martin Luther once said, the pulpit is the throne for the word of God. It is from the throne of the pulpit that the word of God is to reign. Philip Brooks, in his famous 1877 preaching lecture series at Yale, said, If you are afraid of men and slave to their opinion, go and do something else. Go make shoes to fit them. Go even and paint pictures, which you know are bad, but which suit their bad taste. Wow. Uh, but do not keep on all your life preaching sermons, which say not what God sent you to declare. The man who will preach the word of God must understand that there is an authoritative nature to true biblical preaching. <sighs> okay, I'm just like, I'm like taking a breath. And um, I'm wrestling. I don't know about you all uh, when you hear that. And that's okay. I trust your experience. And I trust where you feel led to go. And, and where you feel led to go, even if it's in opposition of me, that does not scare me. But I feel overwhelmed because I can see sprinklings of truth that I don't altogether disagree. Like, I think that there is a degree, right? Don't we all systemically, when we show up as a teacher, uh, we want to be able to teach from an authoritative realm where people can find truth in what we have to say. And, and we try to communicate truth in many different ways, right? Like we like scientific hypothesis. Uh, we, we take surveys. Uh, we try really hard to communicate a message of truth. And within that truth, though, we have to accept that sometimes human error shows up. But also where I feel nervous, where where I start to lose 
what could be a decent message in this is that arrogancy, that sense of elitism. It's like separating the boys from the men kind of talk that's not sitting right with me as a believer. What I want you to notice here, what, what I'm trying to argue for is the ways in which uh, gaslighting shows up in these very micro, it's, it's just like these micro blips of messages that um, for individuals, like if all the things John MacArthur is saying is true about people's longing to hear the word of God and absorb it and, and find solutions within it, if that's true, then the human error, the assumption that, well, humans are innately flawed, and John MacArthur also goes on, and the writer of this particular chapter in this book goes on to state that, um, I believe he quoted John MacArthur again, saying that the only thing in your sermon that is going to be true, the only thing filled with truth, is the Word of God, is the Bible. And so what is happening when human pastors are getting up on the pulpit and uh, communicating a message, they shouldn't be, if that's the case, like, don't, like, just preach a message uh, and uh, don't let uh, parishioners come to you when they're having issues in their marriage and don't control what small groups look like because you are, you are admitting that you are willing to step into the imperfection of the human walk with God. Let's go a, a little bit further uh, for a second here. So there, there's another message uh, in which the, the writer of this chapter talks about his own journey into the um, uh, pastoral field or the fatherhood or however he wants to, to look at it. And he is stating, I had primarily been an athlete, but when God calls you into the ministry, he gives you an insatiable desire to dig into the text. It is a supernatural work of God, and if you do not have it, you have not been called. If God wants you to fly, he will give you wings. If God wants you to preach, he will give you a great hunger and desire for his word. When he summons you, you will become a student of the word. You will dig dig and dig into it, knowing that you must plunge into the depths of his inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. That sounds incredible, doesn't it? Like, who doesn't want that um, that hunger, that insatiable calling, just that deep supernatural experience? And so where I get confused is that on the one hand, uh, I have somebody who is um, who's writing a book that I don't Disagree. I don't disagree with the magnanimity of who you are conveying God is and what a, um, what a serious calling it is to dig into the word. But then when you put parameters on it that excludes other people, uh, again, that is, um, that is entrapment, that is elitism, that is exclusivity. And I just don't think that that aligns. Like you can't have one, right? Like I can't say, well, this is for men. I'm sorry if you have this uh, burning hunger to dig deeper into the word and understand better, um, but uh, you don't meet the qualifications because of your gender or your race or your ethnicity. Like you are already out of the running. So whatever spiritual calling you have, surely that's not of God. That That is a hard sell for me. And that's, again, what leads me to go into a different direction because I will say, um, I'm not going to get too much into my own personal faith story um, 
but what I will say is, is I tried to cultivate ways to honor giving my gifts to the church in ways that were quote unquote biblical. And it it just over and over and over again, I found my body just uh, wanting to flee from those situations when it would feel like there was um, control and pressure and um, you're great until you're not kind of experiences. I finally was like, God, what am I doing here? And why do I keep adhering to human expectations of what my faith is supposed to look like? All the while, I have this burning hunger to go out and do this work on your behalf. And so when I finally made the choice to start pulling myself away from systemic Christianity or that tribal pathology, uh, God gave me wings. Um, I will tell you my story. If you want to know how I ended up as a therapist, it is the craziest story. It doesn't make sense. And yet God has just nurtured it, nourished it, and entrusted amazing people to me. And um, so I, I have real issues with material that uh, sounds great that people wouldn't disagree with, but then human parameters are placed on things like the supernatural elements of God. One example, I do not know Beth Moore. So uh, if, if by chance somebody out there listening to my podcast happens to know Beth Moore, just know that I do not personally know Beth Moore. I don't think I will. I most likely will never personally know Beth Moore, but I have read Beth Moore's materials. I have seen Beth Moore, you know, it's funny with social media, we get to see elements of who people's character is. And I will boldly proclaim that I believe that this woman's heart is on fire for God and truth and that supernatural pursuit. And I don't know how entrenched you all are into the Christian world. And I'm just a weird person. And I acknowledge that and I own my dorkiness. Um, So I just come across these peculiarities. Uh, And there was an episode, some sort of show. uh, And I think it was like comedy driven. And John MacArthur had to uh, state what he would say to Beth Moore in two words. And his response was, go home. And I was just deflated incredibly and disgusted incredibly because here there is this man whose society has deemed as a respectable figure in the Christian uh, Protestant movement, in the Southern Baptist movement, and he is stating things like, my words are infallible and we must always point to truth and um, and the Bible isn't about relationship. And here is this person who very clearly holds this supernatural element, this desire to teach truth. And um, and I've, I've kind of like experienced Beth Moore. I did go to one of her, um, I guess you could say conferences. And I remember distinctly, she would not identify herself as a pastor. She was telling the story where somebody's like, I need a pastor, I need a pastor. And she's like, I am not a pastor, but in this moment you need somebody. And, and I'm serving as that. So she wouldn't even like label herself as a pastor to try to like obey the like human rules um so right like so she's trying so hard to honor truth and acknowledge um what man has determined are her limitations within her giftings and frankly the christian movement rose beth more to the identity that she has and then this human being 
who's respected in the Christian community, comes in, talks about the inerrancy, infallacy of God, the supernatural outpouring of desire to pursue God's truth. And then he says to someone who's doing it, go home. What? That is gaslighting. That is manipulation. That is exclusion. That is elitism. That is entrapment. And so here is the takeaway. I'm going to get ready and pause again for today. And then I'm going to go in and I'm going to, um, I'm going to do more sessions on this idea of empathy as sin and why uh, it is just, it, it is crap that we are using pretty manipulative religious language to entrap and isolate people, uh, stirring up fear Uh, which entraps. And so here is what I want for you to take away. Manipulation marketed as truth results in entrapment. Have any of you watched the cartoon Tangled or heard the story of Rapunzel? Uh, My daughter has recently been loving the, the movie Tangled and I love watching it with her. And I will tell you now as an attachment therapist and a trauma therapist and a relationship therapist... Um, that I never picked up on the elements of narcissism that the queen had. Like we knew that, that she was bad, right? But I, I never picked up the elements of narcissism in the story prior to um, my going in and doing my work and understanding the dangers of humans not holding themselves accountable to the empathy and interrelationship and wellness of other people. So anyway... In the movie Tangled, what happens is the witch entraps Rapunzel in this tower and she convinces Rapunzel um, through like, right? Like she's using language, like she's treating her sweetly and she's good to her and she shows up on her birthday. And the only time she feels betrayed is when Rapunzel begins to rebel and question her. And then she turns it on Rapunzel and and gaslights Rapunzel and convinces Rapunzel that the issue is hers. And we all root on Rapunzel, right? Like who who watches Rapunzel and says, Rapunzel, you're such a, you are so disobedient. Why did you leave the tower? Clearly the witch knew what was best for you. And what the witch tried to sell Rapunzel as truth was that if she did anything to her hair, it was a danger to Rapunzel. And if she did leave the tower, it was a danger to Rapunzel because the world was so cruel and so bad and, uh, and the witch was the only one keeping Rapunzel safe. In fact, she, she identified herself as her mother, right? She convinced Rapunzel, I am your mother and mother knows best. In fact, there's a song, this is mother knows best and it's very catchy. And so what happens was that Rapunzel was entrapped by manipulation that had been marketed or disguised as truth. And what the witch did not let Rapunzel in on was was that the witch was out to protect herself. She was out to make sure that whatever Rapunzel's behaviors were, it was going to benefit the witch and the witch's needs and what the witch was trying to protect for herself. And finally... When, when, the, when Rapunzel cuts off her hair, uh, the witch withers away. And in, in the story of Rapunzel, she falls to her death. 
but I guess we could see that as like a metaphoric happening. Like when people, when the narcissistic abuses and entrapments stronghold people and then they get broken down and uh, destroyed, that leads to this metaphoric death, right? Ever, any, anybody who's been listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, that institution fell apart instantaneously because this this individual had developed a church body, quote-unquote church body, uh, in which they had no leg to stand on because he wasn't uh, incorporating elements of self-trust and human autonomy and believing that he could be sustained and taken care of and um, and people would do well by him. Essentially, his his kingdom collapsed on him because it wasn't rooted in anything but quicksand because the narcissist never really knows what they're grasping for. It's, it's this myth of protection and it destroys. So I want for you, what, what I want for my clients to do is I want for my clients to go in and navigate what it means to explore cultivating self-trust and looking at acts of disobedience, what, what the narcissist has labeled as acts of disobedience, what the narcissistic system has labeled as acts of disobedience and check in with self and check in with legitimate truth, Christ-oriented truth, and ask, is this dogma accurate or is it coming from fear? And that's where I want for you to pause today. So we're, we're going to stop. And again, uh, I'm going to come right back to recording and jumping in on the next element because we cannot talk about things like the danger of the narcissist without then moving into if the John MacArthur's of the world are wrong, if the Bible is far more relational than we are then we're giving it credit for, if we are designed to be far more tribal and empathic, then what does systemic accountability look like? What does personal autonomy look like? What does uh, personal goodness look like? We have to explore these. And so we have to go in and we cannot negate the idea of individual accountability as far as it is concerned with keeping the sanctity of um, of that spirituality, of that connectedness, that holy connectedness at the forefront of what we're doing. Now, what, what are these? Uh, if the Bible is uh, something that people turn to for healing, how can we hold ourselves accountable to live steadfastly out of the the image that is that book? And spoiler alert, I am somebody who believes that uh, the Bible did not stop at the pages of what is considered to be the book, the Holy Bible. I believe that as as human beings, if we're still pursuing this truth, like the supernaturality of the Bible didn't go away because somebody put together a document and then they labeled it as holy and inerrant. We are the living, moving Bible and the story's not over. And, and I, I could tell you how I think like doing therapy is sprinkled into the beauty of that and the healing of that. 
Uh, and, and so we will get into those realms in our next session or the next couple of sessions. Again, if this uh, series is talking to you, if it's um, resonating for you, if it's provoking you to do some internal work, if it's providing some sort of healing and affirmation to what you've been going through that nobody's really quite been able to put their finger on for you before, please sign up for my email list or uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, again, I here's my caveat. Um, I do have a Facebook page called The Bind Podcast, but it's like it's not active right now. And that doesn't mean I'm not willing to make it active. It just means um, it's there if you need it, if you need to pose a question, if you're vulnerably willing to do that, because I think you would probably be not so anonymous if you posed your question there. But if you if you wanted to do that, I will be there for that. So please engage with me. I want to be part of the solution and I want for people to find their way back to truth when they have been harmed with manipulation. So that's my spiel. I hope that you all are well. I will be back here to share with you again in a week where we're going to keep um, tackling this idea, this ridiculous uh, convoluted idea of empathy as sin. Dang it. Like I, I want you all to come to your own conclusions, but I'm a therapist and I know that human beings thrive in and long for empathic connection, that that resonance that allows us to hear one another, see one another, find one another in the space between. If relation isn't truth, I don't know what is. Because if we are with God, we are in relationship with God. And so we can't say that God desires relationship with us, but the rest of the Bible is not about our relationships. Anyways, be well, everybody. I will be back in a week. Thank you.